be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church, whether you are here in physically in the room and I can see you, or you're online watching or listening and I can't see you but you can see us. Either way, you're with us. You're here. You've joined and you're engaging with what God is doing here at Northridge and so thank you for doing that. So when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to travel with a school group to New York City. And one of the things that I got to go do and go see in New York City was I got, we got to go to Radio City Music Hall, which is very simply this really huge theater, all right? It's just a huge theater. And one of the things that we got to do when we went to Radio City Music Hall is we got to go backstage and kind of see what it looked like back behind all the curtains and behind the shell and all that kind of stuff. And so this is a picture of, this, this is not actually in uh, Radio City Music Hall. I couldn't find a picture of the backstage of that for some reason. I, I'm amazed that it's not on there. But this is another backstage and it looked something like this. There were ropes and cables and weights and all these different kinds of things to be able to pull the curtains and, and hoist the rigging up and down, you know, with the lights and all kind of stuff. And then, of course, in modern era, we, we amplify everything. And so let's go to that next picture. There's another picture of all these audio cables. Again, this was not in Radio City Music Hall, but imagine that this is kind of what it looked like. It's all, there's all these cables running underneath the stage in all different places and little ports where they could plug in microphones and, and all the different things that they need to kind of get things done. Now, here's what's interesting about it. The backstage was really interesting to see. It was also really messy, <laughs> as you can see. But what is interesting is that nothing happened on the front stage without something powering it or changing it or altering it from the backstage. The backstage powered what was seen, the front stage. And so, here's why I bring that up. Today, we are starting a brand new sermon series called Backstage. And what we're going to talk about, this is probably not going to be the most popular of series because we're going to dig into the backstage of your life. How many of you can get it? I can get an amen to that. Oh, yes, let's dig into my backstage of life. This is the kind of life, this is the part of your life that is either unseen or not seen by maybe the rest of the church community. The backstage of life is, is the stuff where you're kind of doing the things that you wouldn't necessarily and normally do or say or different mode that you be in. In fact, backstage and front stage, we kind of get this idea, right? Front stage of life is when maybe you go to work. And we all know that, that when you go to work, you probably don't act exactly the same and wear the same things as you do at home, do you? Most of the time. Most people I know, when they go to work, now if you work from home, you can do what you want to do, right? You can kind of wear a nice shirt and down below you've got like, you know, I don't know, uh, jammies on or sweatpants or I don't want to know what else, right? Little fuzzy bunny slippers or whatever you like to wear at home, right? And we know that the backstage of life, most people when they go to the office, when they go to work, when you work on, maybe you work on a manufacturing line in a factory, maybe, maybe you go to a job site, maybe you're in construction, you, my guess is you don't wake up and whatever you're wearing out of bed, you just go to work that way. 
You probably don't do that. Why? Because that's your backstage and front. So we understand that backstage and front stage is different. But in many ways, we understand that it's not supposed to be different either. To, to a degree, if we're different people, then maybe we're being false. And so today, we're starting this series of, of backstage. And, and we're going to kind of dig into this backstage because the setting, your environment, who you're around and who you're with dictates how you act and how you talk. In fact, let's dig into this just for a minute. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were kind of in a backstage zone of life, like you're comfortable, right? Maybe you're wearing something, you're in a group of people that you're just ultra comfortable with. It could be your coworkers, could be at home, could be closest friends, and all of a sudden one or two people add to the mix. They walk into the room and all of a sudden you switch from being backstage to putting on the front stage mask. Anybody ever had that experience? I bet you have. Because all of a sudden that person or those people that walked in, you need to be somebody different now because you didn't know they were going to be there. Oh, forbid that the pastor walks into the room. I've seen people's eyes go up when I walk in sometimes. I'm like, I'm just a guy. No, you're the pastor. I'm sorry, I'm so scary. Sometimes we change from, we were backstage, we were good, we're just plugging things in, or I'm just in my jammies. We're talking like I normally talk, and all of a sudden somebody shows up, and we become front stage people. And so today, and for the next several weeks, we're going to dig into this. Because our surroundings, our environment, who we're around dictates who we are sometimes. And in one way, it's healthy. Like, you probably shouldn't wear jammies to work unless they've said it's jammies day. But let's be honest that if we change who we are, depending on who's in the room, that's probably not us having integrity in who we're supposed to be. And so, for a few weeks, yay, we get to dig into the backstage of life. And today we're going to talk about our faith backstage. What does our faith backstage look like? Now, if I were to ask you about your faith front stage, where would your faith front stage be? For most of us, our faith front stage life would probably be Sunday mornings, wouldn't it? Like, this is where we're the most comfortable following Jesus. Like, we can talk about Jesus. We can raise our hands and praise Jesus. We can sing about Jesus. We can do all the different things that we're supposed to do for Jesus here. Why? Because the vast majority of people that we're surrounded by, we follow Jesus. And you're like, man, I'm surrounded by people who are trying to follow Jesus too. And so this is comfortable. And if you really want to, you can come in your jammies to Northridge Church. Right? You know we're pretty comfortable. Most of you are like, eh, I'm not that comfortable yet. Okay, that's cool. But this is the front stage, isn't it? This is front stage faith. Maybe a life group or, or getting involved in the winter coat drive next, you know, next weekend. If you do that, maybe that's your front stage. You kind of put on a little bit more of a, a faith front. Then what would our faith backstage be? What is less seen from a faith perspective? From a church perspective. Well, my guess is that would be work, right, throughout the week. That would be home, home life, school, for those of you guys who are still in school. We've got a lot of people in here in elementary school, middle school, I see. High school is represented here. College is represented here. 
If you're in school, how you act at school, how you act at work, how you act at home might look different than your front stage faith part of life. And so today, I have what might be some hard words to hear for us on our front and backstage part of life. In fact, what I want to start with is I want to start with the words of Jesus. If there's anybody that is loving and amazing but also speaks the truth and lets it hammer home, it would be Jesus. And so I want to start with his words, and let me just set up the context. So where I'm about to read Jesus' words, the context is this. He's with his 12 disciples, and he's talking with them, and he asks them this question. He says, hey, everybody, uh, I know people have been talking about me, uh, so I'm just wondering, what are they saying? Who, who do they say? Who are all these people that you're talking to? Who do they say that I am? And they give a whole bunch of different answers. And then Jesus follows up with this second question. He says, cool, who do you say I am? Now, that's a different question, isn't it? Who does everybody else say that Jesus is? And then Jesus says, okay, that's, that's cool. Who do you say I am, though? Who do you think I am? Now, when Jesus asked that question, none of the disciples want to answer how many of you, when Jesus asks you a question, you feel like maybe he's leading somewhere and you're like, I don't want to give the wrong answer? I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes a teacher would ask a question and I knew that they were asking me because the answer was not what it seemed. And so I didn't want to answer. I'd be like, I'd sit on my hands. And what I, look, I learned this, I would look right at the teacher, but I would sit on my hands. You know why I do that? Because being a teacher myself, if you don't look at the teacher, the teacher will call on you because they're a good teacher. I did that all the time. The people that were like, their shoes were the most interesting thing in the room, in my classroom. I'm like, hey, you look like you might have an answer. No, I don't. That's why I was looking down. That's why I called on you. Jesus asked this question and all the disciples are like, mm, who do I say? I, I don't know. And finally, Peter speaks up and he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You were sent from God. Now, I give you all that context. That just happened, and this is the very next thing that Jesus says right after that moment. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah sent from God. Okay, Jesus gets that. Now this is what he says, Luke 9, starting in verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, Jesus, must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, which means consistently, all the time, not every now and then, all the time, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I don't know about you, but man, let's sign Jesus up for some motivational speaking. Right? Because at the end here, he says, if you are ashamed of me, 
when I return in glory, I'm going to have to be ashamed of you. Now, how many of you have Luke 9, 26 saved on your screensaver on your phone? Anybody? Nope. How many of you, I haven't been to all of your homes, but I've been in some of your homes, I haven't seen that you've framed this one. If, I am ashamed, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. How many of you put that up and you're like, man, that's a good word, Jesus. Right? That's a good word. Well, the truth is, right? The truth is that Jesus says, if you're going to live your life backstage or front stage, ashamed of me, then what's going to happen is I'm going to have to be ashamed of you. Now, a lot of us would think, a lot of us would think, well, Jesus loves us. Yeah, he does. He loves you more than you know. He loves you. Pick the person who loves you absolutely the most on this planet, including yourself. You love yourself pretty well. Some of you don't, but most of you do. Jesus loves you way more than that. Way more than that. But he's still, because he loves you that much, he's also going to tell you the truth. These are difficult words. If you're going to be ashamed of me, I'll have to be ashamed of you. I remember when I had lunch with um, somebody from Northridge Church one time, and we met somewhere in Madison and had lunch, and after lunch he said, hey Brent, do you want to come see where I work and meet some of my colleagues, my coworkers? Let me just tell you, that almost never happens. And I was like, Sure. <laughs> I mean, that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah. Let's have, a, can I bring some communion and we'll do something? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Uh, but we had lunch and we went to his workplace. And, and so we walked into a room where two to three, I think maybe three of his colleagues were sitting there, you know, in their workspace. And he introduced me to them and said my name and said their names. And he introduced me as his pastor. And as soon as he introduced me as his pastor, one of his co-workers spoke up and said, why would you ever want to do that? Meaning be a pastor. Now, he said it kind of funny, but he clearly meant it serious. Like, who would ever do that? Be a pastor. Now, at that moment, I answered. I remember I answered something along the lines. I don't remember the exact words, but essentially I said, well, I actually love being a pastor. I, I believe in God. And I believe that being a pastor is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And I actually love it. I love helping people, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I kind of rambled through an answer, and that's what I said. And then God, I can just tell you this, and most other people would not, maybe nobody else, probably nobody else knows this. But in that moment, I was prompted, I was, I was pushed by God, the Holy Spirit, in that moment, to say more than I did to say more about Jesus, to, to elevate Jesus in that moment and not just say, yeah, I love being a pastor. I love helping people. It was, it was a very safe response. But God was saying, give them a little bit more. Now, I would love to say that when I, what I did is I preached a message and all three of them gave their hearts to Jesus in that moment. But I didn't. You know what I did do? I didn't say anything else at all. I stopped. I just said what I said and we moved on and I said, good, nice to meet you. And, you know, the person I was with and we kept walking, he showed me the rest of where he worked. I never said anything else about Jesus or about faith in that moment. Even though I knew God was 
pushing me to step out. Now, the question I have is, why did I do that? Is it because I feared, I was scared of what they were going to say to me if I did elevate Jesus in that moment? Because clearly, I was in a room where Jesus was not exactly excited for them, right? They were not excited about Jesus. They were not excited about me being a pastor. I was not in a, I was not in church. <laughs> I was a long ways from church at this point. Was I scared? Maybe. Was it possible that this guy that had said this comment, that he was trying to bait me a little bit into fighting, to, to getting my, 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 you know, my passion up, and, and he felt, felt like maybe we could get into a fight there in front of his colleagues? Because, you know, he, yeah, I, I did feel that way. And was I trying to avoid a fight? Maybe. Is it true that maybe I was a little embarrassed, a little taken off guard by this guy's comment? I thought, you know, I was introduced as a pastor, and now all this guy, sudden this guy's kind of coming at me a little bit, passive-aggressive, clearly. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. Was I a little embarrassed, taken off guard, not sure what to say? Absolutely. Whatever the reasons, probably all of those reasons, at least a little bit, I stopped with what I said and I didn't say anything else. If I were going to be honest, I was in that moment just a little ashamed of Jesus. And I'm ashamed to say it. In fact, I didn't want to tell that story. I'd, I'd much prefer to tell the stories where, like, I was victorious in my faith. But it was something where I knew I was acting a little bit ashamed with Jesus. Now, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus, when he says, if, if you're ashamed of me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you, is he talking about one moment where you fail and you're just done, like you're toast? Bring on the lightning. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is he saying that in a moment, like, like what I just shared, it, when I mess up one time, that he's going to come in and he's like, I'm ashamed of you. You're done. It's over for us. What do you think? Of course not. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a consistency in your faith. Are you consistently ashamed of Jesus? Like on a daily basis? Well, that's a different problem, isn't it? It's kind of like um, my younger brother, Bryce. He's four years younger than me. And a few years ago, uh, he was driving from one place to another, and he was going too fast, and it's called speeding, and he got pulled over by a police officer. And, uh, but the, here, here's the reason that he was speeding, and here's the reason he got pulled over by a police officer. The reason was his wife was in the back very much in labor. And I, and I don't mean like it was progressing. I mean like baby's coming right now kind of thing. Okay? Now, I don't understand what my sister-in-law, Brittany, was feeling. Okay? I've never gone through that. But I know when they were telling the story how intense this was. Bryce is trying to get his wife to the hospital because it is like imminent right now. It's not progressing. It is now. She was like, Bryce, you've got to get me there now. And so he's speeding. He gets pulled over. The police officer was not quite in tune with the situation, so therefore they were there for a few minutes. And finally he figured out, we need to let you guys go and get you there. And so they got to the hospital. I kid you not, I can't remember, but within like five, ten minutes of them getting to the hospital, the baby was born. I mean, they barely made it. Now, let me ask you this. Is it the same 
When my brother gets pulled over for speeding, when he makes a mistake one time because he's trying to get his wife to the hospital versus a person who gets a speeding ticket 5, 10, 15 times every year throughout the several years. Is it different? Of course it's different. What's different about it? The person who does it all the time, it's a habit. It's who they are. My brother just made this maybe one mistake, and some of us say, it was a mistake, he needs to get her to the hospital. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's not saying we have to live a perfect life. He's saying we need to live a faithful life in our backstage. And I don't know about you, but my front stage life is very, when it comes to my faith, is very public, isn't it? I share a lot of stories. You guys know a lot about my faith, my failings, and my victories, because I have to share a lot about it, because it's very visible. Your faith, especially on a Sunday morning, very visible. But let me ask you this question. When it comes to the backstage part of your faith life, does it line up with your front stage? Does it line up? You're not ashamed of Jesus here. That's good. But are you ashamed of Jesus when you leave here? When somebody calls you out? When somebody says or does something that you know you should probably at least walk away, if not maybe engage. How's your backstage faith in life? Because I can stand on the stage and look really good, but if you see me on Friday acting like somebody completely different and bashing Jesus or not calling people out when they bash Jesus in front of me, then maybe I'm not who I say I am. Does your backstage line up with your front stage? Now, how do, we, how do we view life then? Because I don't know about you, but I think, at least in our culture, we tend to view Christianity, Jesus, in terms of compartments. Jesus is definitely should be like ruling over church. Jesus should, should be at least a part of the home. But Jesus probably shouldn't be a part of school, probably shouldn't be a part of work, probably shouldn't be a part of larger culture because we might offend somebody. That's, that's what a lot of us, maybe even in this room right now or online, some of you believe. You believe Jesus applies to most of life, but not all of life. And so there are sections of life where we kind of keep Jesus out. Jesus doesn't have a place there. It might be offensive. And sometimes we compartmentalize life, and I think it's a matter of changing our perspective on what it is, on where life should be and where life should go. I want to take you to another aspect of Scripture. It's a guy named David. You guys know who David is, right? He's the guy who defeats Goliath, becomes king, all that kind of stuff. And he writes about this perspective in life that we're supposed to have. Uh, warning. This is not any more encouraging than what Jesus said, but it is truth. Let me read what David says. Again, these are David's words. Psalm 39, 4 through 7. David says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Other versions say mist or vapor. 
We are merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, this is kind of the crux of this statement. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. My only hope is in you. Now, I don't know about you, because we're, we're getting ready to kind of land the plane here a moment, and we're going to end in a way that we haven't ended in a while. But the truth is that, that we might get depressed about what David wrote there. That, that our life is, is short, it's a mist, it's a breath. We might, we might get depressed about that, but David is not saying your life is short in terms of how many years you have. What David is saying is your life is short in comparison to God, in comparison to eternity. If you compare the length of your life to God and to eternity, it's very, very short. That's what he's saying. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit. So I need a couple of volunteers. Uh, Noah, you're on this side. Can I call you out? Why don't you come on up here? There's a piece of rope. If you can grab that. Jake, you're on this side. Uh, Jake, come over here and there's a piece of rope. Come grab this rope, all right? And uh, just stretch it out as far as you can. You stretch it out as far as you can. I know I'm embarrassing you guys this morning. I'm sorry. You guys are all good. And now lift that rope up, pull it nice and tight, and then come closer to me so I can reach it. All right? So this rope, nice job, guys. Nice job. This rope represents eternity. Okay? Now, some of you are like, well, that's pretty short for eternity. I, I get it, all right? It's really difficult to illustrate eternity. But let's say that this rope illustrates eternity. Okay, it's really, really long. And this illustrates, just imagine this rope doesn't have an end and it keeps going that way forever and it keeps going that way. Not around the earth, I mean forever. It just keeps going in both directions. That, oh, by the way, illustrates who God is. God doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. God does not start, he doesn't end. He never had a beginning, he never will have an end. The difference between us and God is that we have a beginning, but catch this, we don't have an end. Some of you say, no, you do, you die. That's not your end. That's not your end. The Bible does not tell you that when you die, you're done. It doesn't say that. If, it, if you believe it says that, you're reading somebody else's Bible and it's not God's. The Bible tells us we have a beginning point, but we don't end. Now, here's the thing. In terms of eternity, if this signifies eternity, then this is my life in eternity. This little pinch. This is your life in eternity. A little pinch, a breath, a vapor, a mist. This is not to communicate your value, by the way. Some of you are like, man, I'm more valuable than that. Yeah, you are. You're incredibly valuable. But it doesn't mean that your life is as long as eternity. It starts here and it continues on. Now, here's the thing. Jesus wants us 
to figure this whole backstage and front stage life out? Because here's the truth. Almost everybody lives for this part of their life, the pinch. And I'm here to tell you this morning that we should be living for this life. Don't live for this life. Live for this one. The eternal one. Your decades here on earth are a mist. They're a vapor compared to eternity with God or apart from God. Thank you, guys. You can set it down. The truth is, Jesus tells us that he died for all of our life. He didn't die for your front stage. He didn't die for your wealth. He didn't die for your career only. He died for all of that, plus your family life, plus your work life, plus your coworkers, plus your neighbors, plus your friends. Jesus died for every aspect of your life. Jesus died for the life when you are by yourself in your office, nobody else is watching, whatever you're doing, Jesus died for that part of your life. Jesus died for your career. Jesus died for every aspect of you. He didn't die for just the backstage. He didn't die for just the front stage. He died for every part of your life. And guess what? He died for every person's every part of life, your whole life. Not just the pinch of life, the entire life, the eternal life. In fact, do you remember how we began? I read this part from Jesus, but we probably forgot it after Jesus said, if you're, if you're going to be ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And so then we forgot how he started that statement. Do you remember? Let me take us back. Verse 22. Jesus began that section by saying this, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Do you know why Jesus died? He died for you. He suffered and was rejected and put himself, he allowed himself to hang, be nailed to a cross. We don't talk about this much anymore. He was spiked. I, I, I explained this actually to the high school boys just last week. The two bones in your wrist, feel them. Seriously, take your fingers and feel the two bones in your wrist. This is important. Feel it. There's one on the bottom and there's one on the top. Same, side, same on both sides. You know what they would do? They would drive the spike between those two bones so they would hold you up and it goes right through a nerve one of the biggest nerves you have to make it as painful as possible. They did the same thing with his feet. They'd stack the feet like this and they would drive a spike through the feet to cause as much pain as possible. And then they would hang you on the cross and when they put the cross up, you can't breathe unless you do what? Unless you push against the spike that has so much pain in your body. 
It's the only way you can stay alive. Jesus knew all of that. He's God. He knew what he was about to go through. He's the only God, he's the only king who has ever sacrificed their life to pay the price for his constituents, for his people, for the people that he served, that he led, that he is the authority over. He said, I'm going to humble myself underneath them and I'm going to die on a cross because I love them so much every aspect of their life, their backstage, their front stage, every part of their stage. And so that's why Jesus has the authority to say, if you're going to be ashamed of me, I have to be ashamed of you because I've done everything I can for you. I've done everything I possibly can for you. I died for you. And I rose three days later. So today, we're going to end by taking the sacrament of communion. It's been a while. But this is an opportunity. I, I hope you don't see this as a ritual. It is not a ritual. It is not a tradition. It is the way that Jesus told us. It is a sacrament, which means it's holy. What Jesus said is, this is the way I want you to remember and to celebrate me dying on the cross for you. That's how I want you to do it. The bread is going to represent my body. The drink is going to represent my blood, which is spilled, which is poured out, which, which ran out of his body to forgive our sins. And so we're going to celebrate communion. Now, you might be wondering, some, a lot of you are new to Northridge, so let me just talk about this. How are we going to do this? Some of you are looking around, and you're like, I don't even see where communion is. <laughs> so we're going to sing a couple of songs, two songs, and the tendency is going to be to treat this like a ritual. I want to encourage you not to. The tendency is going to be as soon as we start the first note, the first word of the first song, you're going to feel like you're compelled to like get down there and do communion and get back to your seat so that you don't run out of time. We're doing two songs. It's going to take a while. If we get done with the first song, that means you still have another song to go. It's okay. You're good. And I want to encourage you to do something. Take whatever posture, do whatever you need to do to be reminded of what Jesus did for you. Now, that might mean that you have to get uncomfortable today. Because some of you, that means you need to raise your hands or put your hands out to surrender to Jesus. It's fine. Some of you, that might mean that you stand and sing just like we normally do with these two songs. And when you're ready, you can go take communion. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, take and eat. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, take and eat. That's great. Some of you, maybe you need to sit and pray. This is a great opportunity to determine where you're at with God, with Jesus. Some of you might need to kneel. I know we're not in a Catholic church and we don't have the things. Seriously, we don't have the benches, right? Some of you are already worshiping right now, and I love that. Like, this is, this is awesome, right? Because 
It's not about a bench, and it's not about a thing, and it's not about doing the right stuff. It's about who you are in surrender to Jesus. Are you real about that? If you're not, honestly, you don't have any part taking communion. That's the truth. And we, we practice open communion here at Northridge. And you know what that means? That means we don't care if you're Catholic or Lutheran or this is your first time to church or your 10th time to church. You don't have to be a member at, at Northridge. That's not what we're celebrating here today. We're not celebrating Northridge Church and membership at our church. We're not celebrating that. You know who we are? We're celebrating Jesus who died for you. So if you've accepted Jesus, communion's yours. You should celebrate it. And so I want to invite you as we sing these songs, hear the words, listen to these words, worship Jesus for who he is and what he did for you. Communion is our way to celebrate that. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to share the last scripture. And people are going to be, several stations are going to be around the back behind you. Again, don't, you don't have to rush. Take your time. You can wait. It's two songs. If you need gluten-free, it's going to be on the side next to the table over here. Okay, the two people that are closest to the door. Everywhere else is all the others. But let's take a moment and remember Jesus' sacrifice for us and celebrate it together. Matthew 26, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. The next day, he's going to be crucified on a cross. This is what he says. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant, the promise between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. This is our opportunity to celebrate Jesus and what he did. Lord Jesus, Our life truly is just a breath when we compare it to you in eternity. But that does not communicate our value. Our value, you have set our value by dying on the cross for every one of our lives. You have told us that we are absolutely, incredibly valuable, which is why you paid the price for our sin for all of us, our whole life. And so today, Jesus, as we celebrate with communion, may we sing, may we pray, may we once again offer ourselves to you because of your sacrifice and love for us. As we take communion, help us to follow you, serve you, and live for you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.